It's Irving, and you are listening to Asians in Space. I would like to begin by acknowledging that I am fortunate enough to write, record, and produce this podcast on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples. I'm joined in conversation this week in the isolation station by award-winning author of the memoir, Older Sister, Not Necessarily Related, English professor at the University of Winnipeg, and giving BIPOC makeup book looks on her socials daily, Jenny Hazen Wills. We discussed her lived experience as being an adoptee in relation to her sense of self in the Asian diaspora, the power that a name holds, and her intention when making a syllabus and reading lists for her classes. Enjoy. Joining me this week in my isolation station is award-winning author of the memoir Old Sister, Not Necessarily Related as well as a professor in the English department at the University of Winnipeg. And you follow her on her social media for both things I just mentioned above, but you stay for her book-covered inspired makeup looks. Uh, Jenny Hajon Wills. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for coming and spending time to talk during this pandemic and during this week of civil unrest mm-hmm. yeah um the first question i have for you today um touches on a larger theme of this podcast as well as just asian diaspora identity in the western world um, which is asian canadians on this continent feel as if they're trapped between two worlds and spend a lot of their life reconciling their identity and themselves to this fact. And you've talked, we've talked a bit about it. Uh, You've written about this also, but your lived experience in particular is different from, I know my lived experience and a lot of the lived experience of the friends and family in my life. And that's, you have the extra dimension that is being adopted also. And for you, what's the process like for you examining this fact now that you've grown up and lived through it already? Yeah, thank you. That's a really good question. And one that I think a lot of adopted diasporic people think about maybe throughout their entire lives and and the thinking never ends. It's always shifting. Mm -hmm. Um, You're right. There's an added level of complexity for folks who feel maybe liminal or between different poles of identity when the entirety of our kinship and community networks when we're younger um, are reflective of just one side altogether. So I read a lot of stories about people who are immigrant generation or 1.5 generation. And what seems clear to me in those works is that there's sort of this outside world where young people are going to school, um, going to their part-time jobs, whatever, and encountering certain communities in their lives. But then when they return home to their family, there's maybe a different environment or a different Mm -hmm. cultural environment. And I think this is that sort of two positions that you're talking about or being between these different worlds. For some, you know, transracially and transnationally adopted Asian folks, there isn't even that location of Asian 
solace in which to return at the end of the day. And so it becomes quite weighted in one direction over the other at times. Now, for someone adopted in my generation, so I came over in the very early 1980s, there was also a different approach to thinking about adoptive kinship. Um, a lot of social workers and agencies really supported the assimilationist model entirely, mm -hmm where adopted young people were encouraged to entirely sort of blend in or take on these so-called honorary white or white adjacent yeah, identities. Yeah, like an idea of upward assimilation. Yeah, like this gift that, I mean, no one was really asking for <laughs> to begin with, I guess. Um, but that we do need to recognize um, the privilege that we have in that proximity, at least in youth. But, but this, again, adds a complexity when we come of age because all of a sudden we're an adult person of color standing next to these white people and that kinship isn't registered the same way. So one has to come to adulthood understanding what it means to be an Asian person, a person of color, without having those experiences or those tools established in youth to understand how to navigate. Yeah, it's almost, sorry, it's almost as if you're mm -hmm. missing those cultural shortcuts that people yeah. who have a connection, have a direct connection at home to go to when they leave it, right? Yeah, absolutely. It can be quite shocking all of a sudden to maybe have not noticed that you were being read as a person of color in your youth. Mm. And then all of a sudden to be an adult and to be registered in that way by society and not having the, uh, the knowledge of how to understand that and how to experience that. Yeah, how did you acquire some of that knowledge or some of that cultural yeah. Uh, connection. It, it was difficult because one of the things that I was fully unprepared for, had no knowledge of, is the way that um, Orientalist lenses on Asian women sort of position them when they're of a certain age. And so I made a lot of mistakes in my early 20s, in my late teens, that nowadays I would hope that young um, Asian femmes are protected from or have that kind of knowledge to protect themselves from. So I made a lot of errors. I also moved to Toronto when I went to college, which mm -hmm. meant that I was just around other communities of color, not necessarily Korean people, but, um, but other people of color and started to see the value in those kinds of kinships and, and BIPOC kinships is so meaningful to my life today yeah i feel similarly when i moved to the lower mainland here mm -hmm. after growing up in calgary so right and it's it's amazing it's the realization that uh one the world and your world can be bigger than whatever cul-de-sac or, or street that you grew up in right yeah as well as that um Similarly, that uh, where you grow up and the context of your community and the makeup of your community um, has a great effect on <laughs> your own knowledge of self and the context of which you fit into the world. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally agree. 
you know, sometimes people ask me why I turn to literary studies in the end. My first, um, my first go around at university was in journalism, but then I went back to school and studied uh, English literature, eventually finding um, through that discipline writers of color. And I genuinely believe that it was a way for me to start to try on these ideas of Asianness, of being a person of color, mm-hmm. of dis- of having access to some of those childhood experiences and adulthood experiences of being a person of color in the world that I hadn't really experienced until that point. And, and I think when I was in college and meeting Koreans for the first time, I felt very bashful because I didn't speak Korean. Yeah, right. I didn't have any of the cultural knowledge. I was embarrassed and, and they were, you know, at best patronizing, found it very adorable that I didn't have those frameworks. But literature and those kinds of texts allowed me to do some sort of research in figuring out where I wanted to be in this world. Yeah, I find it's sad. I know, but I also find it. I've talked about this before on the podcast and also posted about it. I I think I've written about it too and posted about it on my Asian Mm -hmm. Canadian account. But these like impossible parody tests for that people throw up to. (laughs) declare if you're Asian enough or if you're black enough or if you're brown enough mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, like they're total bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> no one like those gate that it's just gatekeeping within a community. Right. And I think the way I feel about it, I've said this before, but it's like I don't care if you know how to use chopsticks, if you don't know how to <laughs> speak your mother tongue, if you don't have like the five acceptable jobs of an Asian household. (laughs) It's like, the only thing I care about is like, do you know the history and the context of the struggle (laughs) that people with our skin color, with our last names, with our eye shape, with whatever that whiteness will label us as Asian. (laughs) Do you know those struggles? Do you know the history? Do you know those contexts? And if you do, then like, that's great. And that's good enough for me. Yeah. But imagine this also, that for some adopted people, doing that kind of research into our origins mm-hmm. is seen as an insult to our adoptive families. And so sometimes people are in a position where they have to protect those adoptive, usually white kinships from an actual genuine curiosity in our own culture. Right. Sometimes we're put in positions where we have to be the parents in a situation um, and be the protectors of other people's fragilities. And as a result, I mean, it complicates that idea of having cultural knowledge if you don't, if you're afraid to hurt someone's feelings that you love and care about because of the unfairness Mm -hmm. of the situation. Right. Yeah, but I feel. Sometimes that internalized racism, I, I, I can't speak for you, but I know for me growing up in Calgary, I have, I built up a lot of internalized racism. Mm-hmm. And that, I feel like, hurts the self more than the quote-unquote, like, comfortableness of, like, not upsetting the status quo of white people. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, it's painful. Um 
But again, there's no right answers for every situation. It's up to the person to choose what they think is best to deal with these issues in that moment. Mm -hmm. I think so. I've been thinking a lot lately also about, um, as you were saying, the ways that gatekeeping has certain people from certain experiences um, having to perform like extraness and extra dedication too. Um, I think that there are a lot of adoptees who experience this, maybe biracial people also, Mm -hmm. who feel the need to prove their loyalties to our racial communities twice as vigorously to be recognized through that gatekeeping sort of dynamic that says, you know, you're not not 100% um, purely part of the group, so Mm -hmm. show us, um, show us your loyalties. And on the one hand, I understand, I guess, the dubiousness, but on the other hand, it can be exhausting to constantly feel rejected or, or searching for belonging from the community that you love so much. Which is actually, now that you say it like that, it's quite insidious because whiteness yeah. does the same thing to non-white people, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this is another way that some folks are constantly in that liminal like or between worlds state is always having to prove more and more and more to all of to all of the parties yeah. involved yeah, yeah. um talking about that uh you you talk about this in your memoir mm. um but what did you find when you went back to korea f- for the first time yeah so so you're right my memoir is a reunion story so i wanted to write something that was different than a lot of adoption stories that sort of start in childhood and discuss a lot of the um you know racial circumstances that we experience let's just put it that way um but i wanted to start off with the reunion in korea and to see what that relationship can look like after the fact and and what i found i think what you're asking is that it's also much more complicated and much more out of reach than um, than one would hope. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, when I arrived in Korea, just culturally, I had no language, no cultural sort of uh, literacy to exist in that place. But it's also simultaneously this place that I want so much yeah. in my bones, in my entire body, and and that, that feel that feeling of like frenzied desire for a place that also frightens you because of how alienated you are from it mm-hmm. was really um, it was really saddening in some ways. Yeah, but, but yeah, go ahead. I don't know what your initial feeling was, but I remember the first. Even when I went to Asia now, uh, <laughs> I tell people it's like if I ever want to feel any more Canadian, yeah, I'll go visit Asia. <laughs> right. And just because, yeah, um, most, just because you look like everyone, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, I don't know how to describe it. They, no, this is how I would describe it. Okay. They have a different cadence. Mm-hmm. And it's like just the way I walk or dress right. or yeah. talk they know I'm not from there. Right, right. 
Yeah, Kim Tui um, talks about this in in Roop, the Vietnamese-Canadian novelist. She's a Francophone novelist. She talks about this, how just the way that, um, for her, a Vietnamese woman who arrived in childhood in Quebec but then grew up in Quebec, the way that her pace is registered when she returns to Vietnam immediately indicates that she is from elsewhere, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think you're absolutely right. I, I sometimes feel like because I look so um, so Korean yeah. when I'm there that it's just a weird kind of wanting to articulate myself through as an explanation for why I can't speak Korean mm -hmm. and for why I behave in the ways that I do. It's the only time, I guess, that I admit <laughs> any form of like nationalist connection. Yeah. Is, um, is in that vulnerable state. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but some of the things that I found in Korea beyond um, immediate family and extended family, mm -hmm. I think um, included an awareness of where I was headed, yeah. I think, and just whether I was going relationship with my Korean family or not. I, I realized that in the sort of narrative span of an adopted person's life, like the chapter of not knowing mm -hmm. was over. Yeah. And there's sort of no going back. And a lot of the things you don't want to know, in yeah. fact. It's, there's like but there's no unknowing. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 knowledge once you have it, you have it. Yeah. Exactly. So so it's frightening to be in a moment of not having that knowledge, but then it's differently frightening to have that knowledge. Yeah. Because also that part of you, like that identity of being a non-reunited adoptee or pre-reunion adoptee, yeah. like it's over. Yeah. That person's over. It's almost as if mm -hmm. that, it's like you just change, this is a very basic way of thinking about it, but it's like you almost change clothes and you're not sure how they fit now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And usually they don't fit, <laughs> at least for a little while. You have to grow into yeah. them, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's the process of everyone's identity. It's that we yeah. contain multitudes. Those things grow. Mm -hmm. We like go of things that no longer serve us. And absolutely. It's, in a, it's a process that we'll take with us for the rest of our lives. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I need to also reiterate that the fact that I was able to make a reunion, the fact that I had the, you know, financial, the physical mobility to go to Korea is also a gift that I don't take for granted. Um, yeah. Um, I found this part of an excerpt from your book particularly interesting, and you talk about mm -hmm. your name that was given to you when you were born and how yeah. that was erased almost immediately <laughs> and then you get a new name and right. you get adopted right. so my question for you is what lives in the power of a name yeah that's a really complicated question i think um until quite recently um, I was just using my Canadian name entirely. Um, 
including in some of my academic writing mm -hmm. and and what didn't exist or what doesn't exist on paper in that name is any of my racial identity um, i may not have like an ethnic identity that matches my korean name but i have a racial identity that matches it yeah. and I think that it was important to me to include my Korean name in um, at least my public, you know, identity in this way because my race is the most important part yeah. of how I understand myself. It's something and so, no racialized person can take off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But my racial identity on paper had been removed. Mm. And so I wanted to reclaim it back in that way. Um, it's complicated because it's a difficult name to pronounce and my Canadian family had been misinformed on how to pronounce it. So it was being, so they had it as my third and fourth middle name mm -hmm. when I was growing up. Um, also like it'd been divided somehow into two names, like okay. Korean names are two syllable. Yeah. So, I guess there was like a, com a confusion there, but um, but it had also always been mispronounced. And so there's been a little bit of tension as I've reclaimed the proper pronunciation right. as the only person who reads the Korean alphabet in my family. Yeah, right. I can see how my name is spelled, so I know how it's pronounced. Yeah. Um, and I've heard my Korean parents say my name. Mm -hmm. So, so but, but that's created tension because of um, the figure of me that my Canadian family was accustomed to and right. wanted didn't align then. And something as simple to some people as a name was one of the pieces in which it didn't align. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, my closest friends call me by my Korean name. Okay. So yeah, um, and so that's really meaningful mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, no, names are always a funny thing, especially mm -hmm. during this week and the idea of what's lost in names, especially in Black and Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. um, for Black people, it's like you think their names, their last names are like Smith or Jordan. Mm -hmm. Yeah from where they actually come from. And it's like, no, and yeah. with history of indigenous residential schools here in Canada, mm -hmm. when they literally were just given a number to be called by. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thieving of names and also um, the violent imposition of other names mm -hmm. in um, black and indigenous um, communities and experiences uh, is just another example of colonial and white supremacist erasure. Um, the only people that I know who share the same family name as I have, mm -hmm. um, my Canadian family name, who aren't related to me, are all black people. So, okay. um, in, in the US. And, and so, we've had a lot of meaningful conversations about the imposition of that name on them, the different, obviously, like, definitely not comparable um, imposition of this name on me and, um, and the way that names are used to yeah. label um, from the outside sometimes. Mm -hmm. So about this past week, 
I'm sure yeah. you've seen, as have I seen, like a lot of resources being shared to help people who want to be better informed on the racism mm-hmm. that has built this continent. Mm-hmm. And for me, I feel a couple of ways about it. Um, first, if people want to compile like reading lists and stuff, I think that's great. Um, some problems that I found uncomfortable is um, particularly white folks who throw the emotional labor of compiling these lists onto black communities or people being like, what should I read? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they read them already, first of all. Yeah, like... There's also that annoyance. Yeah, when people are like, oh, have you heard of, like, James Baldwin? Right. It's like, he, he, he's been around. There's no... Yeah. The books are already out there. You don't need to just quote unquote discover them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Also, like, don't use that weird colonial language yeah. of like discovery or whatever. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But as an educator yourself, you're in a position where your job, you need to make syllabuses and reading lists mm-hmm. um, for, for your students to share, as well as in class to shine light on the works. And provide mm-hmm. context to the stories that your students will read. Mm-hmm. And so, what is that process like for you? Like, what questions you ask yourself mm-hmm. if a reading or a story is appropriate, or what you're trying to accomplish in the particular class? Because mm-hmm. not all, every class is different. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you read something, it can have multiple contexts to be used, but mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And just to quickly come back to this point of um, reading lists or journalists asking for advice um, through literature, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that I have noticed a lot is the request of labor from Black authors to explain what should be read or what should be done when they've already spent their entire lives writing right. about this. And I find that so, so I've noticed people asking Black writers to explain what they should be doing, what they should be reading right now, when these writers have been already explaining this through their craft, right. um, their entire careers. And, and I find this particularly offensive because it A, suggests that they aren't paying attention to what those writers are doing every day. Mm-hmm. And it's only in a moment of crisis that they're trying to virtue signal or whatever. Mm-hmm. But on top of it, that they're asking these people who are so brilliant to give a cheat sheet on their own lifetime work yeah. for the benefit of these people, mm-hmm. right? And, and it suggests to that if they're not willing to spend the time to read a novel or a book of essays and want the Coles Notes or Cliff Notes version of something, that they're going to be hasty in their dealing with this information anyhow. Yeah, and it's so. <laughs> and again, these texts are a starting point to the work. Absolutely. They're not a finish line. It's not like you read um, Martin Luther King's letters from a Birmingham jail and it's <laughs> like, oh, I... I'm an ally. I, I get got it this. Now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like literally um, a meaningful thing for cultural creators to be supported in this way, mm-hmm. but it's also a very passive way to, um, to participate 
in protesting anti-black violence. Yeah, because it's like, okay, you have the information now. What are you going to do with it? Mm-hmm. How are you going to yeah. wield it? How are you going to arm yourself with it? How are you going to help others understand the context too? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And how comfortable to be able to do it without leaving your house or yeah. doing anything <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. um, but the question as to how I think about course development, mm-hmm. you know, I teach specifically critical race studies in English. So already um, I have in mind politically what I'm trying to do yeah. with every course that I teach. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the outset, I mean, that doesn't make it easier because there's so much BIPOC brilliance that it doesn't limit me in any way. You have the intention set. (laughs) Absolutely. So I only teach writers of color, first of all, and Indigenous writers. So that's already um, one way that I think about putting together course outlines, even my creative writing courses. In terms of the specificity of like a reading list, you know, it depends on the course. So this past term, I taught um, a third year course on race and ethnicity and anger Mm -hmm. in literature. And I wanted to focus on the righteous anger of protest Mm -hmm. that writers of color, the BIPOC writers use as an important strategic tool and think about the ways that emotion is always dismissed yeah. in communities of color, in writing of color, etc. A lot of tone policing, especially. Absolutely. or And also in literary circles, the belief that political writing also isn't aesthetic, right? So this disingenuous separation of beauty and style and so-called good writing, which is also a loaded term, right? That centers white supremacy and certain canonical writers, but the separation of that and work that's about identity and that's deliberately doing political work. Yeah, it's like so I try, sorry, yeah. It's like when people complain about like, oh, this movie's too political, or like, yeah. keep, like your politics out of my sports, or exactly. Why can't I? Just As if enjoy, anything is apolitical. Yeah. yeah. Or I can't enjoy this artwork or piece of mm-hmm. art because you're making it, you're politicizing it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I had a student who dropped my course this week, my first year course, because they said that literature is meant to be escapism for them. And I just thought, golly, how sad. So it's like (laughs) when people complain, like Star Wars, for example, just like an example off the top of my head, when they're like, oh, why are they politicizing like the new Star Wars? And it's like, it's a movie about rebels toppling a fascist empire. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll have to take your word for it on that because I don't know. No, that's fine. But but it's always funny what's considered politicized and what's just considered like an escape for some people. I mean, that's politicized is just a dog whistle that's used to say like, this is too black or brown for my taste, honestly. But then what's funny is that it just highlights how much whiteness is centered within North American culture in that if I'm supposed to su- succeed in a white world when I want to do like a podcast or some work in media or whatever, it's like, oh, I need to know like white cultural touchstones. Yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is the other thing. Like people assume that we go to these kinds of writings or texts or whatever because I don't know, it's like easier because it reflects our identity, but no, we need to know all the other stuff too. Yeah. Like I know Hamlet, mm-hmm. I know, um, you know, Emma, I know David Copperfield, I know all that stuff. We know like the great Gatsby, we know. 
Like, yeah, exactly. Frankenstein, so, we know. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it's just, you know, it's disingenuous. But I think about when I'm putting together courses, the ways that um, I can challenge those assumptions mm -hmm. of how art and politics are disconnected. Um, I also uh, emphasize or try to emphasize um, various racial communities, various intersectional communities, um, especially uh, queer and trans writers in my courses. Um, so in an Asian American class, I, I think about um, highlighting underrepresented voices mm -hmm. in, at least in Asian Canadian literature, I think be such a, you know, segregation of South Asian writers, Southeast Asian writers, and um, East Asian writers. So no, I think about a that. Large continent. Absolutely. And so I want students to understand also that it's not just like three writers. Or, so I use a lot of short fiction. Or too. it's not just like three countries when you think of Asia. It's not just Absolutely. South Korea, China, and Japan. Absolutely. I mean, at my university, we have area studies. But like East Asian studies. Mm -hmm. And in this city of Winnipeg that has one of the largest Philippine communities, like diasporic communities in the world, yeah. they don't they don't teach um, Tagalog, they don't teach like Philippinex history. It, it's shocking yeah. to me, beyond the idea of area studies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. shocking. But, um, but, but yeah, I think about um, underrepresented yeah. voices and I think about uh, short texts and poetry so that the student can understand that it's more than Maxine Hunkingston and like yeah. a few other people, that they, they need to see the breadth of how many people there are also. Yeah. And, um, and, and the other thing that I try to think about mm -hmm. is teaching um, texts that are also about joy. About what, sorry? About joy and celebration and humor because I think often, especially when students for the study, they think solely about the grief and pain of being oppressed mm -hmm. in white supremacist society. But there's so much beauty and laughter yeah. in our communities also that I want to showcase that. So I teach a course called Race, Fashion, and Beauty also okay, cool. um, that I think is about creation and excitement and vibrancy. Yeah, no, it's funny when, uh, back to your like quick point on about like there's more stories than just like oh this is how we resist yeah and like if you yeah. think about it it's always funny when um something happens or something's considered like racialized it's always like they it's like in just coming to mind for example like the journalism realm it's like if <laughs> you're an asian writer you only write quote-unquote asian stories right yeah, absolutely. And and I think um, I see with a lot of my friends and colleagues who are fiction writers and poets, there's this disbelief sometimes in audiences also that a writer of color would not be writing autobiography, yeah. right? That there's no capacity for imagination. Mm -hmm. There's also that um, fallacy. Or that the joy that non-white people they're only allowed to write about it if that joy is seen as quote-unquote like colorless mm -hmm. like yeah. your joy can't come from your own culture as if right. that culture is lacking 
in the requisite things that need to produce joy. <laughs> Absolutely. Unless it's the kind of joy that like a mainstream society can consume. Yeah. Like food and dance yeah. and regalia. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that kind of joy is allowed. The kind of joy that can be fetishized, that's allowed. Yeah. Or, or, it's, or the joy has to be tied to a white savior. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> but as you make a priority to choose to highlight only black and indigenous and non-black and indigenous people of color, it just came to my mind of what we consider like high literature or mm -hmm. what's worthy of being considered a part of canon. Yeah. Um, no, you're absolutely right. All of these sorts of hierarchy of goodness are based on the arbitrary rule invented by those who are already in power. Yeah. And so um, it's like a moving target, mm -hmm. right? White supremacy is all a moving target, and that's why it's so difficult to overcome because the It's a bit choppy uh, for the next point she was trying to make, um, but I feel like it was an important point enough that uh, from what I've salvaged from it, uh, this is what she had to say. Uh, she was talking about, she was making a point about how white supremacy gatekeeps um, the canonization or what's considered quote unquote good art. And she said uh, recently uh, how white supremacy gatekeeps of what they said about uh, POC was that they don't have the capacity of imagination to write creatively and that they don't have the stylistic chops for to reach that level of art. And this was the justification used for why they're not included in canon or those higher, those upper echelons of literature. Yeah, so just wanted to make that point clear uh, because I felt it was too important of a point to just let go and for people not to hear. Uh, anyways, thank you and back to the podcast. Um, six months ago that uh, op-ed people come out about nonfiction and that point that it's not factual enough. Mm. Right? So all of a sudden, the, the, um, the attributes that are considered good nonfiction, right, mm -hmm. um, shifted because a lot of writers of color and writers from the community are writing more and writing creative nonfiction. So all of a sudden, that's bad, mm -hmm. right? So before it was bad to be too factual, and now it's bad not to be factual enough. Yeah. So this is a slipperiness of the systems of goodness and badness. Yeah, no, the, like I tell people all the time, systems of oppression don't care if you're nice, they don't care if you're good, they don't care if you're quote unquote bad. They're systems mm -hmm. of power. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're just going to like morph into something else tomorrow um, just to keep people out. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, any other thoughts about your process of reading lists? Um, I mean, not really. I try to keep up on very current writers and to support um, really new BIPOC writers mm -hmm. in Canada. 
Um, I'm really excited by some of the things that I'm seeing now that are going to come out in the coming year. I'm just thrilled by um, by those works, absolutely. Um, I think that people do literary syllabi one or two writers of color. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how to navigate that situation because part of me thinks, well, there could be more, but then the other part of me what some people who don't think very thoughtfully about the subjectivity do with those right. texts. Because you don't so, want someone just to... <laughs> even though diversity for diversity's sake is a good thing, but something like a class where you have to teach the works, you just don't want someone who's performing to put these works mm-hmm. on, but they don't really know how to yeah. talk about them. and teach Or about who them. hates them. True. Yeah. And going to be awful to yeah. the books and to their writers. Yeah. Right, so um, so I'm not sure what I fully think about that, mm-hmm. but I do think of it often. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, second last thing, do you have anything to plug before we I let you go? Um, I. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me a bit shy, but um, so so my um. So my memoir, Older Sister, not necessarily related, has just been released in the United States. Um, So I think that it's now available on on the Penguin Random House website there. The paperback, from what I hear, is going to come out next year, um, in less than a year from now. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about that. Um, Yeah, that's about it. I'm doing smaller writing projects these days. I'm working on a novel. Okay, so exciting. Stay tuned. And I do actually have an academic book coming out in September okay. um, on multiculturalism and transracial adoption. Okay. Yeah. And then last thing I'll get from you is like, do you have a takeaway message for everyone listening? Uh, yes. Obviously, all Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. That should be the takeaway message every day. Yes, because just because... If you don't, just because the hashtag goes away on social media doesn't mean yeah. that the struggle is finished. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so thank you for taking time to chat today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, it's really great. This conversation was really insightful, I think, and mm-hmm. brought up a lot of ideas for me. Yeah, cool. And thank you for the work that you're doing. This is an amazing podcast and something that is... Um, greatly needed in this country and also beyond so no thank you you. i'm just lucky enough that all of the people who have been on to talk to me trust me enough with their stories yeah 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 no you're doing great work and i appreciate it so much i appreciate you thank you music is by francis arabolo logo designed by gracie messina keep updated on instagram at asians in space Listen and subscribe to Agents in Space on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and to see other platforms it is available on, go to anchor.fm slash Agents in Space. The takeaway message for this week is a line of poetry by Anish Moshkani. They write, Will I be something? Am I something? And the answer comes. Already am, always was, and I still have time to be. So during this time, I want everyone to make sure that they're staying safe and if they're choosing to contribute whatever way they can, keep doing it. And just some 
I don't know housekeeping notes. I had plans for the next two weeks of podcast, and I'm not sure if they're the correct tone during this time, but I am working on new things, but those will take a little bit of time to finish. So if you don't hear from me next week, I will be back in July. My name is Irving Trong. This is Asians in Space. See you next time. Until then, we out.